Tough day? You have no idea. What did I do in my past life to deserve this? Maybe if I keep working hard, it will be better in the next one. Oh, I wouldn't count on that. Said those words to yourself, maybe in the next life I can do better? Well, that's one of the things we want to look at this morning as we explore Hinduism as our world religion this morning. And to do so, I want to kind of step back to last week to kind of give you a reason why uh, we've been doing this. There's this thought in the world, as Mark shared with us last week, that all religions are fundamentally the same. They're just superficially different. They're kind of like M&Ms, right? They all look different on the outside, but if you cut them open down deep, they're all the same. But really, that's not true. When you start to do the investigation, what you find out is that really all religions are fundamentally different, at, at best, superficially the same. It's really a view held outside of these world religions. In fact, if you do the study within your own religion and start to understand other religions, you would say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. They're vastly different. They're nowhere near the same. And none of the world religions would say that they are the same. And so it's sort of a, a very naive statement to say about world religions, really usually held from the outside. And so what we would say is that they're more like golf balls. They look similar, but you cut them open, and they're vastly different. They're not at all the same. They're all completely different. And that's what we would say. Christianity is far different than any other world religion, as well as Hinduism would say. It is different from Christianity and Islam and Buddhism and Judaism. It's a different world religion. Now, they would look at these other world religions and say those are valid expressions. Those would be one way to God. But they would reject the claim of Christianity that Jesus is the only way. They would not agree with that whatsoever. So as we begin, I'd like to kind of give you some statistics about Hinduism so that we have a better understanding, so that we don't jump to conclusions and we make false assumptions about Hinduism. There's about one billion Hindus throughout the world. It is the third largest religion in the world following Christianity and Islam. One billion followers of of Hinduism throughout the world. 2.2 million of those reside here in the United States, and about 90,000 live in the state of Illinois. Interesting fact is that about 94% of all Hindus live in the country of, or live in India. But it would be a mistake to think that all of India is Hindu. In fact, this last year, they estimate less than 80%, first time in history, that less than 80% of the population in India is Hindu. 14.5% are Muslim, and 2.5% of the population of India is Christian. And when you look at the statistics in the United States, you don't want to make the mistake that all Indians are Hindu, because that would be a mistake as well. There are about 3.2 million Indian Americans here in the United States. Only half, by statistics, are Hindu. 18% are Christian, 10% are Muslim. So we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that everyone from India is a Hindu, because that would be wrong as well. There are varied faiths, there are varied world beliefs throughout India and throughout the Indian people. But we want to look specifically at Hinduism this morning. And as we do, I want to kind of caution you, because Hinduism is not a single entity or a single tradition. It's a synthesis of traditions and beliefs that have been melded together over thousands of years. 
And it would be an insult to try and reduce Hinduism down to a point where we could adequately compare it to Christianity. It would take a lot more time and expertise than we have here this morning to do an adequate comparison, a complete comprehensive comparison between the two religions. It would be impossible. And it would be an insult for us to try and do that. However, there are tenets, there are beliefs within Hinduism that are universal pretty much to all Hindus, that all Hindus would adhere to. And that's one of the fundamental differences we want to look at this morning. It's this difference found within Hinduism that's different from Christianity. One of the ways Hinduism looks at the world is through this pantheistic worldview. Pantheism, what is pantheism? It comes from two Greek words, meaning all and God, from the Greek word pan, meaning all, and from the Greek word theos, meaning God. For the Hindu worldview, everything is God. Every living force, all material, everything that you see is the ultimate, undifferentiated being. There is really no difference. The reason that you see a difference is because of ignorance. That would be the Hindu worldview. It's pantheistic, but some say, well, it's polytheistic. Well, it is polytheistic, meaning more than one God. And there are many gods within Hinduism. But ultimately, theoretically, at the core of Hinduism, there's really only one undifferentiated being. All the others we see in practice, but in reality, there's only one. And everything that you see is a part of that one undifferentiated being. Different from Christianity, correct? Yeah, correct. But the one difference we want to look at this morning that we can understand, I think, a little bit clearer because it is nothing in Hinduism is clear. This, I think, gives us a better understanding, one, one approach to which to judge it. And that is this idea within Hinduism called transmigration. You may know it by this name, reincarnation. It's the belief that your life is a life that has been lived before and before and before and before, through cycles of unending time, your life, your Atman, your soul, has been reborn, dies and is reborn, dies and is reborn, dies and is reborn, in this endless cycle of time throughout these endless cycles of life. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. Contrast to that in Christianity is that of resurrection, that we have one life, we're born once, we die once, And then comes judgment and the resurrection. There is no second, third, fourth life. There is this one life that we're given. And so what do we mean when we look at reincarnation within Hinduism? Lord Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, which is the Hindu sacred scriptures, says this, Just as a man giving up old worn-out garments accepts other new apparel, In the same way, the embodied soul giving up old and worn-out bodies barely accepts new bodies. Within Hinduism, there's two parts to the human. There is the soul, the Atman, that continues. And then there's the physical body with it, the brain and the memories and everything else. That dies and gets planted in the ground and decays. But the Atman remains and then is reborn into another body. That's the idea of transmigration or reincarnation. Maybe you've seen this movie. Anybody seen this movie yet? The dog's purpose, it's about a dog who's reincarnated over and over and over again. He has throughout lifetimes, and he has 
different owners, and he's trying to discover his purpose. And he discovers that as he lives these different lives in the body of different dogs, but he's still the same dog, but just in a different body and with different owners, trying to understand his purpose. At its heart, it's talking about reincarnation, but there's some differences to this movie than classical Hinduism would teach you about reincarnation. Reincarnation in the Hindu faith is that, yes, your Atman, your soul, continues life after life after life. But the difference between that movie and generally the concept of Hinduism, or generally the concept within society, is that you remember what you were in your past life. In classical Hinduism, you have no consciousness of your previous life. There's no understanding of the life you lived before. You're only taught that you did. And you live this life with the expectation that when you die, you will be born again, or you will have rebirth into a new life. No idea what that life will be. So I have no consciousness of previous lives. I only have consciousness and memories that maintain in this life. I do not carry those with me into the next life, nor do I have those of previous lives. There would be rare exceptions in Hinduism to that. It would be like Lord Krishna, who is considered to be a fifth or sixth reincarnation of the Lord Vishnu. But very few, you would not expect in Hinduism to have a memory of a previous life. Which with that, kind of paints reincarnation in a little bit different light, doesn't it? And reincarnation is governed by this principle throughout Hinduism, and we see it throughout Eastern religions called karma. You've heard that, right? You've probably said it. Well, that's karma. That's a Hindu word. That's a Hindu belief. That's a Hindu understanding that everything you do is governed by what you do. And your life in the next life is governed by the life you live in this life. This is the way karma is explained. The word karma itself means action. And simply put, it's a principle that one's life is governed by one's own continuing behavior and practice. Karma says, how you live in this life will determine the life you're given in the next. Live poorly, you can expect the next life to be more dire circumstances. You do well in this life, better circumstances in the next life. Although when you live the next life, you'll have no idea as to the life that you lived before that ended you up where you, at, where you are at. So as we look at a story in Scripture, I want to give you an idea how maybe a Hindu would answer this question to give us a better understanding. Jesus is walking with his disciples, and they see a blind man, and they ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now to the Hindu, they would say, it's the man's fault. His life previously, must have, he must have done something, it must have happened in his life, something bad, that he would have been born blind in this life. The reason he's born blind, his own fault. But they would also say, the parents have a karmic debt as well. The reason they were given a blind son is because they must have done something in their previous lives that would deserve them being given a blind son and not a sighted son. So karma is paying both of them back for the lives they've lived before. That's karma. Karma is something that you pay off. Jesus goes on to say, it's neither the son nor the parents' sin for the reason that this man was born blind. 
The thing about karma in Hinduism is that only you can pay it off. No one else can pay the debt for you. You alone are responsible for paying off your karmic debt of previous lives. And again, you have no idea what that debt is. You can only try to figure it out based upon your station in life today. Take this example, the man was born blind. How do we know that he wasn't blind, deaf, and mute in his previous life? And being born blind, they might consider to be an upward trajectory. Or you think about the dog's life in the movie. He's born, his second life, he's a female dog. He looks under and he's like, I'm a woman? In the Hindu faith, that would be a downward trajectory. You'll go from being a man to a woman. But you'd have no idea what the previous life was, so you really have no idea as to what it is, what your trajectory is. You're just told that there's a hope that you can actually be released from this endless cycle of birth and rebirth. There is hope in Hinduism that eventually, at some point in the future, there's no time, and there's no specific formula that would lead you out of it, but it's called moksha, and you want to try to achieve moksha, and you are the one that achieved the release. Don't get it wrong that somebody reaches in and releases you from this debt. No one does that. There's no concept of forgiveness within Hinduism. You alone are responsible for paying off your karmic debt to reroute your trajectory back to the ultimate being, back into communion with ultimate undifferentiated being. You determine that. No one releases you from it. And so you, you live these endless cycles of lives over and over and over again with the hope that through meditation, the proper meditation, the right amount of meditation, through discipline of knowledge and renunciation of this world, at some point the promise is you will be taken back up into and with the ultimate being. That's the Hindu understanding of reincarnation, a little bit different than what's presented in the media and maybe what you've understood before about reincarnation. The Christian contrast to that, as I said earlier, is resurrection. We believe in one life. We believe that God is separate from his creation. We believe that God created everything that we see from nothing. And that he is separate from his creation, the material world as well as each one of us, and each one of us are separate from each other. We are each individual lives. And each of those lives will be lived once. And each of those lives will will die once. And then will come eternal life. It's at the end of that one life. It's at the end of the death. It's at the end of time when Jesus comes again that we will experience eternal life, either with him or without him. Not absorbed back up into the one being, but with him as individuals, as human beings, with new bodies, but the same people. And everything that we'll achieve, everything that will be will happen to us in eternal life will be based upon God's grace, not by what we do. I don't earn my way into eternal life. There aren't these strict set of rules that I must follow with the hope that by doing the right things and by outweighing the bad with the good that I could hope to achieve eternal life. No. Eternal life is a gift from God. 
our faith in him is a gift from God. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, not in ourselves. The idea of Christian resurrection is one life, one death, judgment, eternal life. And all of that is a gift from God. And it's not our good works that lead us there. It's our faith that Jesus has paid that price, that Jesus has released us from this debt, has released us from this sinful, fallen, broken world. And it's only Jesus that can do that. There's nothing that you or I can do to pay off any kind of debt that would get us right with God, that there is a separation between God and his creation, and what caused that separation was sin in the world, another force separate from God. Jesus is the answer for all of it. Jesus is the answer. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. One life, one death, one judgment, one resurrection. And Jesus will be our judge. But Jesus is also our salvation. It will be his life lived that will deem us worthy. He's the one that will judge, and he's the one that has defended us. And you read this verse, and some will say, well, wait a minute, Jesus is coming a second time, so that sort of teaches like reincarnation. Right? But read what he says. He will appear a second time. He will not be born again. Jesus was born once, incarnate once as a man, died one death, but was raised to life again, not in a new body, but in the same body, with the scars in his hands and his feet and his side. Not reincarnated, but resurrected. And scripture tells us because he was resurrected, we too, who believe in him, will be resurrected. Again, because of what Jesus has done. Not for anything that we do. And he tells us throughout Scripture over and over and over again, the reason that he's done this is because of his love for his creation. His love for each and every one of you. God sent his son, his one and only son, and sacrificed his one life for the lives of of all. Jesus is saying to you and I that you are precious to him. Your one life is so very precious to him. And his son is the witness to that fact. That he would give up his son's one life for everyone. Even those that don't call him Lord and Savior. Jesus came and died for everyone. Christian, the Hindu, the Muslim, Jew, Buddhist, the high faith, all people Christ came and died for. The problem is not everyone knows that or believes that. We see in these two comparisons when it comes to resurrection and reincarnation a vast difference. Do you not see that difference? 
And it sounds naive to say now, right, that all religions are the same, that Hinduism and Christianity are basically the same. And that's just one fundamental difference. We see that there's a vast difference between Christianity and Hinduism just in this one fact. But Hindus around the world would see Christianity as a way, but they would deny that there's the only way. So God has given us an opportunity. He's called us to come alongside those people with other beliefs, with other views of the world, and share the good news of Jesus Christ, that there is hope in Christ because of what he has done. There's forgiveness in Christ for what he has done. And it's a tall order. It's not an easy job. You know, as we look at the demographics of our country and we see them changing, it seems like day by day. You know, the number one faith tradition in the United States is still Christianity. In fact, it's the number one faith tradition in, in every state in the country. This map is an illustration of that. This is a map of the religions that are the second largest in each of the states. So if you look at the green states, that's Judaism. Or, I'm sorry, that's Islam. Islam is the second largest faith tradition in the state of Illinois, and all the states colored green. Christianity is still the largest faith tradition, followed by Islam. The pink is Judaism. The gold out west is Buddhism. The burgundy in Arizona and Delaware, that's Hinduism. And that sort of teal color down in South Carolina, that's the Baha'i faith, a relatively new faith coming out of Iran back in the 1850s. Those are the second largest faith systems in each of the states. Pew Research says that in the year 2070, if everything continues the way it is, Christianity will no longer be the number one faith system in the United States. It'll be surpassed by Islam. Kind of alarming, isn't it? Kind of alarming. I don't know about your reaction, but I'm sort of like, and you hear it all the time, it's like, well, we got to stop this, right? And we do it by like trying to like protect our borders and, and do all these things to keep everybody out. But I'd like to kind of give you maybe a different perspective on that this morning. You know, in 1976, Syria sent 50,000 soldiers into the country of Lebanon and began an occupation of Lebanon that lasted for 30 years. It wasn't in 2000, until 2005 that they withdrew their troops. And it was during that time of the occupation that Ravi Zacharias, a Christian apologist who's still around today, an author, was traveling through Lebanon with his friend Sammy. Sammy was Lebanese, and he was a, a missionary spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And after they had been stopped at a checkpoint of Syrian soldiers, they pulled over, and Sammy was just put his head down on his, on his steering wheel, and he, he said, Ravi, he goes, I have to tell you something. He said, you know, when Syria sent 50,000 soldiers into this country, he says, I got down on my knees, and I prayed to God, and I said, God, what are you doing? What are you doing to my country? I have been praying to you for years that you would make the gospel dominate in this country. And now, 50,000 Syrian soldiers are occupying my country. What in the world are you doing? 
And Sammy told Robbie that as I continued, my anger grew and my voice got louder. And in the midst of all that, it's I heard God say, wait a minute, Sammy, wait a minute. For years, you have been praying to me and asking me and telling me that Syria won't allow missionaries into Syria. And since Syria won't allow missionaries into Syria, I've sent 50,000 Syrians to you, and you're still complaining. (laughs) Is it possible that God is bringing the world to us so that we can witness to the Hindu here? That we don't have to travel to India to spread the news of Jesus Christ with those that don't know him. We can do that right here in our own neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and in our schools. Is it possible that God is bringing the world to us? And rather than see it as this big problem, that maybe it's this amazing opportunity for God's church to make a difference in thousands of lives. Is it possible? We need to pay attention to what Jesus would do. We need to be students of his word to understand how he would approach this pluralistic society that we live in today. I think one of the greatest examples we can find is in the book of Acts in chapter 17. Paul is in Athens, and it's a pluralistic society, much like the country we live in today. A lot of different faiths, a lot of different gods, and Paul is walking around and he's seeing all these gods, and he notices there's this one god that has no name, it's to the unknown God. And he sort of uses that. And he says, oh, there's, a, there's an opportunity. And so he teaches them about this unknown God, the God that they don't know. And he teaches them that this is Jesus, the one that came and lived, but yet was crucified. But he was resurrected from the dead. And because he was resurrected, those that believe in him will be resurrected as well. And verse 32 tells us of their response. Some of them sneered at him, laughed at him, but some wanted to hear more. Paul saw his culture as a great opportunity to witness to the truth of Jesus Christ, and he talked about the resurrection of Jesus to do it. The resurrection of Jesus, the hope of the world. We need to be reminded all the time, hope is not a set of rules, Our hope is not in our actions. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. The truth is that when we know him, that we will be set free from this debt, that we will be set free from this sinful life, this broken life. It is only through him that freedom truly comes. And it's only in Jesus Christ that we have hope. And that's a hope that we've been instructed to share with the world. And Peter says, always be prepared to share with anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. And so I would encourage each and every one of you this morning to be active. This is hard work. But to be active, pursuing friendships and relationships with those that are different than you, those with different faith beliefs than you, so that you can come alongside of them and befriend them and learn more about them as a person, and they can learn more about you as a person And the plan is that as you get to know one another, at some point they're going to look to you and say, explain to me why you have hope. And you can say, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you about Jesus. Because he's the hope of the world. Not just my hope. And it's not 
to be misunderstood, as most people misunderstand about Christianity, that it's living this good life and obeying all these rules. Our hope is in the one that lived the perfect life, the one that died that death. Our hope is in him, not in me. And so we want to bring them to a person, not to a set of rules. That's our job. That's what Jesus has asked us to do, to share that light with the world. And to do that, we're going to have to get out of our comfort zone and seek out relationships with those of different world religions. I'm telling you, that is so convicting to me, but it's so exciting at the same time. Together, God's church can make a difference in the world right here. Right here in Illinois, right here in Lyle, we can make a difference. There are a few resources I want to share with you as I conclude, and there are several books. You can see two of them are by my favorite author, Ravi Zacharias. Why Jesus is his response to a New Age spirituality here in the country, which really is an outflow of Hinduism. And Jesus, among other gods, he does a compare and contrast of Christianity and Eastern religions. I think it's very well written, easily read, and understood. The other is The Universe Next Door, written by James Sire. And it's a book, more academic, but talks about a variety of worldviews here in the United States. All of them I read, all of them I would highly recommend. But there's another resource I would, I would really encourage you to spend the rest of your life understanding, and it's the Bible. First and foremost, we need to spend our time there. Understanding more and more every day this person of Christ. So that we can live more like him. So that the world will ask us these questions because we will look different and we will act different. And it will cause more and more people to start asking you questions. Tell me, why? Why do you seem hopeful in the midst of all this? Why? I'm glad you asked. I pray that you spend the rest of your life studying this book because there's more in this book than you can learn in the rest of your life. No matter when you start. I pray that you spend your lives learning more about Jesus, coming into a closer relationship with him for the world's sake. I pray that for each and every one of you. Amen. Thank you for spending some time in God's Word with us during this message. It was recorded live in worship at Trinity Church in Lyle, Illinois, where God is leading us on our mission to look, live, and love more like Jesus. Would you like to know more about a relationship with Christ or more about Trinity, who we are, what we believe, and where and when you might join us in worship or a growth group? Please visit our website at tlc4u.org. That's the letters T L C the number four, and the letter U, dot org. May God bless you and yours abundantly through Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening.